0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified Program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov.
0: I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: All right, all right. It is Monday. It's 12 o'clock on the dot, kids. And... It's time for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, with your best friend, Katie Kiefer. Just call me Auntie Katie. Um, and I am here to bring you another great show. I am delighted. As part of my Joys and Sorrows segment, I'll just start by saying I am filled with joy at the prospect of my guest today. Her name is Anna LaPay. I will give you a more formal introduction in a few moments. But I think um, pretty much everybody out there who listens to the show regularly knows who Anna LaPay is. So um, I am delighted to bring her onto the show. But onward to the various joys and sorrows of my life. And yours, by the way. Um, The Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, this is at the very end of his term, right? He tried. He failed. He shelved for about seven years, something called gypsa, the GYPSA rule, um, otherwise known as busting, trust busting in the agricultural sector. Anyway, he is back at it again, and especially against big meat companies. Um, you will actually be hearing a lot more about that on December 5th, when I have booked the fantastic Christopher Leonard, the author of The Meat Racket, one of my favorite books about the meat industry and something that I found absolutely galvanizing, uh, certainly when I turned to writing my own book. Um, and uh, But Chris Leonard is is about to publish a major article on on the subject of uh, antitrust litigation within the meat industry, or rather consolidation and concentration within the meat industry, and what that means. Um, as you probably know, it is one of the most egregiously consolidated industries in the world. And as you will learn upon reading my book, "What's the Matter with Meat," which will come out next March, uh, that concentration has had enormous and negative consequences for rural communities, for workers, for the environment, and much, much more. We simply cannot raise meat the way we do now. It has to be changed. Um, so we will look forward to hearing what Chris has to say about that. But in the meantime, um, it's great news that VILSAC and the USDA are finally trying to start busting up some of these giant conglomerates uh, and um, multinational uh, companies that are basically price fixing, you know. And running the tournaments that Chris Leonard described so aptly in his book the meat racket um, that 's one of the facets of uh, facets of the litigation that Vilsack is is beginning to push towards uh, unraveling the meat industry lock um, so next up on on the joys and sorrows score. Did you all see the big piece in the Times yesterday that revealed what most of us already know, but somehow it's news again, um, which is that uh, genetically modified uh, organisms or crops do not increase the yield of their uh, plants, but they do increase the use of herbicides. That's been pretty well documented over the last 10 years. They came into being, I think, somewhere around 1997 was the release of the first GMO, or maybe it was 94 with the Flavor Saver tomato. That went the way of the dodo, but um, the other crops like corn, soy, rice, uh, cotton, etc. I think, what else is, um, papayas in Hawaii are... Genetically modified I think that 's about it i don 't think they're I think they're working on a potato that doesn 't turn brown I know there's an apple that doesn 't turn brown, but most crops um, in case you didn 't know this were not ge- are, are not genetically modified or genetically uh, they are hybridized, but they are not engineered by putting Genes from other species into their DNA, which is what genetic modification actually means. No one seems ready to throw out uh, the idea of genetically modified crops, though, and in the industry, which is consolidating as fast as it possibly can, will soon make it even harder for farmers to buy any commercial seed in the commodity category that is not genetically modified. And can I just take a moment now to remark on the success? of how on the on the on how fast companies have adopted the label of no GMO, no matter what the product is in the interests of marketing to GMO phobic people. Yesterday, for example, a friend of mine was telling me that her jar of curry powder was labeled no GMO. Well, there is no genetically modified spice. What might be genetically modified is the cornstarch that they might introduce into that product to keep it from caking up or getting too wet, um, but certainly the spices themselves are not genetically modified. So, you know, if you look at all these labels that say no GMO, it's just it's just a marketing ploy, 99 times out of 100. Um, and so I think that, you know, it, it's important to think about this as a greenwashing tool that plays on your fears, on people's fears of the safety of genetically modified organisms, when the reality is, you know, study after study has shown that there seems to be no consequence to consuming them. And indeed, we have been consuming huge quantities of them uh, in the form of high fructose corn syrup for, well, over a decade. Um, we do have obesity um, As a result of eating sugary drinks and bad food, but I'm not sure that that could be laid directly at the door of genetically modified organisms. I'd be surprised. The real problem with GMOs, in my opinion, is that they represent a monopoly over seeds. And when only three or four companies in the world are controlling most of the seed stock, then you have a problem. And that's why we need to be fighting against genetically modified organisms. Um, And uh, in other good news, and this really is amazing. And I hope that uh, that this company gets the credit that is due. The Purdue Meat Company, to Purdue Chicken, has committed to no antibiotics ever in their flocks. It's a very, very impressive step forward. Uh, they are the only ones who have done this, and they should be recognized for their efforts. In addition, they have made a public commitment to the five freedoms—the five freedoms, which is a global standard of animal welfare, um, <clears throat> which includes, you know, like a, the freedom to, you know. A, exhibit natural behaviors like roosting or, uh, rolling in mud or, you know, whatever that is. There's a, there's a whole bunch of them, freedom from fear and distress, freedom from hunger, freedom from cold, freedom from pain, um, freedom from being, uh, not allowed to do exhibit your natural behavior. So those are the five freedoms and that's a major thing. Um, so when they start paying their workers a living wage, in addition to these other fine things, I might actually start buying their chickens. Maybe. (laughs) Not promising, but maybe. Um, And finally, here's the best news of all this week. It's only one more week to the freaking election. Hooray! Oh, my God. Am I so done with this election cycle? Am I so sickened by what it has brought bubbling to the surface of our national culture? I mean, ugh! you really just want to puke. It's embarrassing. It's mortifying. It's sad. It's shameful. It's just... It's just nothing but bad news. And I really, I can't wait until it's over. And knock on wood, we have President Hillary Clinton sitting in the Oval Office, because really the alternative is just too horrible to even contemplate. And so on that cheerful note, uh, we'll take a short break for a sponsor drop, and we'll come right back with the wonderful, the marvelous, and the amazing Anna LaPay. And um, we'll have a really fabulous talk about her, as she has just won, won the James Beard Foundation Award for Leadership. So stay tuned.
0: And this one's called Greenwood Cemetery by Teeth People. We'll be right back.
1: New York State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified Seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified Seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do. But the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov.
2: This is what doesn't kill you, food industry insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. Dave, did I forget to introduce myself again this time? At the beginning of the show?
0: I can't remember. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I, I might have, and so here I am doing it now. This is Katie Kiefer. Oh,
0: yeah, that's right. You said call me Aunt Katie.
2: Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, yeah I did. Okay. Of course. Um, and this is um, the Heritage Radio Network, of course, uh, broadcasting live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um, and today it's my very great pleasure and indeed my honor to announce my guest, Anna Lepe. Anna is a national, in case you don't know, and if you've been living under a rock, I suppose you could maybe not know about her, but anyway is a national best-selling author and an internationally recognized expert on food systems. She is also a longtime fan of and partner with Corporate Accountability International. She is the author or co-author of three books, including Diet for a Hot Planet, The Climate Crisis at the End of Your Fork and What You Can Do About It, and a contributing author to a dozen more. Since 2012, she has been working with Corporate Accountability International and other allies across the country to direct Real Food Media, a collaborative initiative to spark conversation about our food system, catalyze creative storytelling, and connect communities for action. The project produces the Food Mythbusters video series, well worth taking a look at, runs an international films competition and leads special partnerships such as the communications campaign for good food purchasing programs nationwide with her mother, the estimable Frances Moore LaPay, a guest on this program about a year ago. Uh, Anna also co-founded the Small Planet Institute and Small Planet Fund, which has raised and given away more than a million dollars to grassroots organizations around the world. She also serves as a consultant to foundations and philanthropists funding food system change and is developing a food funding program for a family foundation based in Marin, Well, thank you for joining me today, Anna. Thanks for having me on the show. (laughs) It's my pleasure. Honest to God. I mean, when I read (laughs) bios like this, I just want to cry because, I mean, in all my 60 (laughs) years, I have not done one-tenth of the many, many things that you have accomplished in your infinitely shorter span on this planet. But anyway, um, congratulations on your James Beard Foundation Award.
1: Tell us about it.
3: Thank you. Thank you. So the the Leadership Award at the James Beard Foundation, it's about 6 or 7 years old now, and I like to joke it's the award they give for the people who don't know how to cook. Uh, but <laughs> right. I, I guess I know how to cook a little. But it's, it's really their effort to recognize leaders in the field of food system change, so it was a huge honor to receive the award. And I definitely yeah. felt um, a bit overwhelmed by it, sitting there alongside people like John Boyd, Jr., who is one of the awardees this year, who's the head of the National Board. Black Farmers Association, and really helped lead the effort to uh, sue the U.S. Department of Agriculture for long-term discrimination against black farmers, and help win a class-action lawsuit that brought more than a billion dollars wow. in funds to black farmers. So he is pretty amazing. I felt a little, <laughs> uh, you know, in a different a different category th- than him. But there, there are leaders like that who are recognized, and so it was an incredible evening uh, uh, celebration but also just really an incredible collection of leaders so people can find out more uh, by checking checking out the the archives of the James Beard Foundation leadership awardees to see some of the amazing leaders they've recognized.
2: And and was there a red carpet and what did you wear? <laughs> Who
3: you are, know, are you wearing, Anna? i to <laughs> say, I really like my dress. No, um, I, uh, it was funny, actually. My uh, The person who introduced me, so they pair every award winner with a, someone who introduces them. And, and this year, the person who um, recognized me is Deb Eschmeyer, who is the director of the First Lady's Let's Move initiative oh. and a longtime friend and ally of mine. And it really was this lovely kind of coming full circle where I had introduced her when she received the award five years ago. So it was great to have her honor me and it was also hilarious the last time we did an event together we basically inadvertently almost wore the exact same dress and <laughs> at the award ceremony when we showed up we looked at each other, we weren't wearing the exact same dress but we were wearing the same designer and she had almost bought the dress I was wearing so for the next event we do together we're definitely going to coordinate. make sure we're coordinating our wardrobes.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> well, great minds think alike, right? I mean how perfect exactly. is that? Um, can you tell listeners if they don't know about the Small Planet Institute and Real Food Media, give us so you know a little um you know three three minute uh, update on what what's going on there
3: Sure. So the Small Planet Institute, I started with my mother, Frances Morlapay, who you mentioned in your mm-hmm. opening remarks, an incredible woman, um, lifetime advocate for sustainable food systems, and a lifetime of, of myth busting work she's done to try to really help people understand the root causes of hunger. Right. Really, from the earliest uh, her first book, her earliest days of doing this work in the early 1970s, she really uh, helped to explode the myth. Uh, that I think many of us still hold today, but explode the myth that hunger on the planet is caused by a lack of food. Instead, what she's said for for decades now is that we really need to understand hunger as a political phenomenon, that hunger isn't caused by a lack of productivity or a lack of production, but really a lack of democracy. And so for decades, she's been really trying to expose those underlying root causes of hunger and poverty. And the Institute is really our effort to continue that work. So we do public education. We've collectively written a number of books since we started the Institute and uh, bring together a network of other researchers and thinkers to do this public education work, and then real food media is really an extension of that. I, I started it with partners, including Corporate Accountability International, to help elevate the story of the sustainable food solutions we see all around the country and, and really the world, and also to help people understand, kind of peel uh, peel the curtain away uh, uh, of the uh, multi billion dollar effort of the food industry to really shape what we uh, think and feel and believe about food, so not just the efforts we're so aware of of food marketing to buy certain products, but really the work to really shape what we think should be grown and how it should be grown and what kind of policies we think make sense, and so we do a lot of work at Real Food Media to help people understand the the mechanism of public relations that the food industry is engaged in um, every year.
2: Wow, fascinating. I'm definitely going to check out the Corporate Accountability International. I've never heard of that group before. I'm ashamed to say, and uh, they sound like somebody I would really enjoy having as you know a guest on this program. Um, right? Do you think so?
3: Yes. Oh, absolutely. You might be familiar with their work because they were they, they were founded in um, in the seventies. Their birth story is they um, they were the group that rose up in response to the um, uh, the, the the work that was discovered that Nestle, uh, the global food company, was doing to market their infant formula in developing countries to oh, yeah. mothers in the developing south, uh, global south, um, and what. The organizers who eventually started corporate accountability discovered is that Nestle was actually undermining women's health and infant health by pushing infant formula on these mothers and of course places where the water wasn't necessarily safe to use and places where women couldn't afford infant formula um, places where women should really have been breastfeeding and encouraged to breastfeed and so corporate accountability was born out of a global boycott of Nestle to really call attention to those practices so you might be familiar with their origin. Yeah. Um, and then over the decades, they've done work, um, similar work, kind of really taking on corporate malfeasance and, and really uh, organizing the public to stand up for human rights, the basic human right to um, healthy food, safe water, um,
2: and so on. Right, right. Um, well, great organization. I certainly remember that campaign vividly being, a, you know, sort of a child of the 70s, more or less. I'm a baby mm-hmm. boomer. So yeah, I remember that very well. Um, but let's talk a little bit um, about what's what's been going on in your world and and I wanted to um, see what you had to say about, um, you know, the fact that climate change and despite initiatives like Plate of the Union, which, I, you know, I had Ricardo Salvador on here two or three times. I had uh, Claire from uh, Food Policy Action on, you know, like there was all this effort in the last year to get climate change and food policy issues into the political discussion during this uh, campaign cycle. And even though these are two of the most pressing, pressing domestic policy issues that we face, you know, nothing happened. But. So what would you like to see, you know, as the first steps of a new administration um, when it comes to dealing with these two issues? I mean, assuming that, you know, we get lucky because uh, I'm not counting <laughs> out not, Donald Trump. Assuming I am... We
3: get lucky and there's not Armageddon. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> assuming we get lucky. We don't get the Antichrist. Yeah. What, right. what would you see as the first steps of a new administration in trying to address these two issues? Because they are pretty much, well, you know, uh, they are. bound together. Mm-hmm yeah
3: yeah and and I guess the way I look at this question is actually to kind of pull back and, and see I feel like we sort of are at a moment of a tale of two cities when it comes to uh, mm. politics in this country where there is this I would argue, um, and I don't know if many people would disagree with me, a very broken, dysfunctional, depressing uh, national discourse that's happening and and a kind of broken system at that federal level. Mm. But what I am seeing and what gives me hope and and has really been inspiring is what I see happening at the state and local levels, where you actually are seeing really innovative policy being put forward and actually passing and actually taking root in um, states and cities around food policy and climate policy and also the intersection of the two. So, for instance, um, uh, here in California, there's a wonderful organization that's relatively new in the last 10 years, really taking off the last five years, called the called Calcan which stands for the California uh, agriculture uh, California Climate and Agriculture Network uh-huh. and Calcan has just helped with a huge coalition of groups helped to fa- pass the first healthy soils legislation in this country that would uh-huh. take some of the uh, the money that's coming into the state coffers here in California around our um, climate action policies help take some of that money and actually put it towards supporting farmers that are deploying practices that build healthy soil, with the idea being healthy soil is, of course, good for growing great food, but healthy soil is also great for increasing the carbon content in soils and and bringing that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and storing it in soils. So that's an example of the kind of policy that gets me really excited. Of course, mm. if I could wave my magic wand and see that uh, passed at the federal level, I would be so happy. But I also feel like a lot of people feel, I think, so frustrated with the gridlock at the national level and f- kind of throw up their hands in hopelessness. And I think there's a lot that can be achieved in one at the state and local level.
2: Yeah, I would agree with you. Absolutely. I think I mean, it is clearly happening in the state and local level. And um, much as I would like to see federal mandates about how we you know, how we rule agriculture, I, I, I agree with you. Gridlock is not going away unless we have an incredible yeah. election this year. So, um, right. The, the one thing you pointed out, though, in an interview, is that is that uh, Hillary Clinton is kind of in bed with the soda industry. You know, she first she supported a soda tax, then she quickly sort of rolled that back. But in a proxy debate, she sent Kathleen Merrigan as her surrogate, um, who I'm actually hoping to have on the show next week, um, <clears throat> and which would suggest a more pro- progressive agenda. If she gains the presidency, do you think she will be likely to? To return to doing things like supporting a soda tax, or even something like um, mandating or putting into the farm bill subsidies for farmers who build healthy soils, who get you know some sort of tax abatement or otherwise incentivized uh, financially to um, change the way that they're doing their their business of agriculture.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, this is a a great question, and I feel like um, if anyone wants to do some fascinating reading, dive into the WikiLeaks reporting on the John Podesta email. So John Podesta, Mm -hmm. for those of you who don't know, is campaign manager for Clinton's campaign. And out of those emails, as well as you can see um, a number of other emails from Clinton Clinton advisors, what is really clear to me is that... um, To the extent that there have been progressive policy discussions coming out of the Clinton campaign or from Clinton herself, um, what you see in the WikiLeaks emails is that those have really come out of her responding to pressure from the left, pressure from progressives, pressure from activists. And so one could say, oh, well, that's, you know, that's so disheartening that she didn't hold those um, values close to her heart, whether it's the $15 minimum wage or the soda tax Mm -hmm. or any of these other issues that we might really care about. On the other hand, what you can See from these emails is that that she's movable, which is a positive, um, and that it really does remind, I think, me, and it should remind all of us that um, let's again hope she gets into office. It's really important that we continue to push on these issues. So, you know, you mentioned um, the the soda tax uh, issue. So, yes, she came out for the soda tax in Philadelphia, and in the WikiLeaks uh, emails you can see almost within I think it was less than 24 hours, uh, uh, consultants to Coca-Cola were reaching out to her campaign and saying, you know, backtrack on that. What does she do? You know, really pushing her to mm-hmm. rescind her support for the soda taxes. Um, if you looked at the John Podesta list of her short list for uh, VP, Mukdar Kent, who's CEO of Coca-Cola, was on that short list. Yeah. Um, so. You know, having I think we just need to know that having her in office doesn't mean that we're you know, it's not a, a free ticket to seeing everything we want to see policy wise <laughs> around food. Yeah. Um, we really have to push her on it. And you know, Kathleen Merrigan, you know, that was so great to see her um elevate Kathleen Merrigan in that way. I haven't seen Merrigan's name on any short list for nope. um uh, USDA. I would love to. So, what can we do to help? You know, push, uh, you know, push her in that direction. There's a there's a lot that would need to be done, um, if and when we can all cross our fingers. She is
2: our next president. Yes, absolutely. You know, I find it very curious that, <clears throat> you know, with all the pressure that has been brought on her about uh, about food policy change and you know trying to make that into a national a part a part of the national discussion, that something that is so close to, uh, sort of the women and children's issues that she has championed over the decades, it seemed to me that that you know, moving forward in in a progressive way towards food policy and agriculture would have dovetailed so beautifully with those uh, stated ideals, and yet somehow it just didn't. She couldn't. You know, I guess her campaign people just couldn't figure out how to make that sexy enough for the for the voting public. I mean, I, I would have thought it would be natural for her to embrace the idea of of a soda tax because of the impact on children's health and children's teeth, and you know, you know, just stuff like that. Like make those direct. Uh, links between what soda does to families and, you know, and her campaign. You know, it was really surprising to me that she... Right.
3: No, right. It's
2: like that should be the easy sell. And absolutely,
3: I mean, she's really
2: run on this. You know,
3: I fought my whole life for children and for families and for women. And all of the food issues we care about are issues that relate to families and children's health. And uh, I think to to me it speaks to just how much influence... the food industry has on campaigns. And I think that speaks more to our campaign finance system than necessarily Hillary Clinton as a specific candidate. Um, But I I think that she's not immune to that at all. And I think that, again, it's why the more that we can expose those connections, the more that we can um, really push, you know, push, push her and other elected officials to embrace the values that they say they hold dear, as you say, these are the values that she says she's campaigning on, and to say, look, if you're going to say you, those are the values that you hold dear, then these are the policies that reflect those values
2: exactly i know it's it's really amazing but to go back to what we were talking a, a few minutes ago about the the um you know the the successes that are seen on the state and local levels um you've been working with the good food purchasing policy and i've actually done a little i've done a, a program around that actually myself uh, quite a while ago with um the food chain workers alliance with jose but um right. you, you guys have done a lot of work in la and I, I and can you talk a little bit about it uh the good food purchasing policy and and how you see that changing the food procurement landscape? You know, t- what is what is the difference sure. going to be, t- you know, whether are you buying it off a yeah. Cisco truck or are you getting it from somebody local mm-hmm. kind of thing?
3: Mm-hmm, hmm Well, most people
2: I talk to about this have never heard of it before. So
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in a nutshell, for listeners who don't know what this policy is, it's is uh, I like to think of it as kind of what lead certification is for buildings. Right. The good food purchasing policy is for food Public food procurement. In other words, it's a, a values uh, lens through which uh, government officials can make decisions about which bids they accept uh, for their food purchases. So instead of looking at you know who's the cheapest supplier, they look through a set of five core values. And their values, I think, we all would share. Their values around environmental sustainability, animal welfare, nutrition, uh, worker well-being, as well as local regional economies. So those are the five values and um and to be able to be a supplier into a either school district or city government that has embraced this policy you as a supplier have to meet just basic minimum basic um criteria around Mm -hmm. those five values. And then the policy really is an inspirational one to really try to push and encourage suppliers to score better and better across those five values. So uh, you don't have to be organic certified to be able to say, for instance, meet that environmental sustainability criteria, but the policy really encourages you to go to that highest level, Mm -hmm. uh, to go to that third party certification of organic, for instance. Uh, So what I love about the policy is that all five of these values are at play. You can't, as a district, school district, or as a supplier, say, you know, we really just care about animal welfare. That's really the value we want to support, and we're not really paying attention to these other issues. Mm -hmm. Instead, what the policy is about is saying, look, these five values they come together, they are unified, they are of, of, a, of, a, of a piece. And if you want to work within our school district, then we really want you to embrace and uh, have practices that reflect these five values. And as a result, when you look at the organizing work that it takes to bring these policies into play and to also make sure that their implementation is strong, what's fabulous about the policy is it brings together a really strong coalition. So you have labor at the table, you have animal rights activists at the table, you have so many different groups together at the table because the policy reflects these five values. Um, So it it passed in 2012 at uh, the school district level in Los Angeles and was really piloted there. and, And as a result, we've seen really incredible impact in Los Angeles. And Now the the group that brought the policy uh, into being in Los Angeles has broken off into a standalone organization that is called the Center for Good Food Purchasing, and it is really providing support for the grassroots campaigns that are trying to pass the policy now in cities across the country, and then even I think more importantly what this center does is provide the technical assistance and the kind of intellectual support to policymakers who once they pass it to say, okay, here's how you implement it. Here's how you really make sure that it isn't just words on paper, but it actually is making a difference in classrooms, in lunchrooms, uh, in hospitals, and, and so on.
2: Right, right. And so right now it's L.A. is the only city working on this, but they're hoping yep. to – you and they are hoping to take this uh, across the nation. What do, what do you think the chances yeah, no, actually,
3: it's I it, was oh, just sorry, just to jump in. Actually, no, it passed earlier this year. San Francisco Unified School District was the oh, second great. district in the country. Uh, Oakland Unified is uh, poised to pass a policy in uh, a week or so. Together, those three districts sell about or buy about two hundred million dollars worth of food a year, so we're talking really significant food mm. purchasing. Yes. and then the most exciting t- well, I don't know it very exciting i should say um news from last week is that uh that los angeles airports just agreed to pass the policy oh, no kidding. so It's really exciting. And then those are just the ones that have passed or really like, uh, you know, like Oakland about to pass the policy. But across the country, we have active campaigns in uh, a number of cities, including very big cities, Chicago, Minneapolis, Austin. Uh, A number of cities are actively pursuing the policy. And then just in the past few months, since we've launched the public-facing websites about this work and and really starting to get it out there, uh, we've gotten queries from cities across the country. So it's very exciting
2: that is very exciting and it brings up to me a question about supply because if you suddenly have a huge demand for products that reflect those five core values um they're they're those five core values are not universal within the agricultural um, community, whether it's the meat industry or, or fruits and vegetables. And so right. is, are you going to, I mean, if it, if it really goes as fast as it seems to be like, I mean, I, this is, you know, this is definitely a, a problem you want to have, but, but still, right. like, well, isn't that is an study, issue? Yeah, when, You're
3: absolutely right. And this is where I feel like um, procurement policies have this power to really change supply chain. So Absolutely. I'll just give you one example from Los Angeles, mm-hmm. because you're right, the supply is not there right now uh, to meet, you know, if, if, you know, we had the great fortune of all these policies passing, at this very moment, the supply wouldn't necessarily be there, but you can see how quickly things can change. I'll give you this example from Los Angeles, which I love. Uh, the um, food, the CEO of the distribution company that was supplying LA Unified many food items, including their breads and rolls. Uh, once the policy passed started, for the first time, having a real curiosity about his own supply chain. These, uh-huh. these values were not necessarily the values he was using to look at his supply, right. but the policy got him to think differently. And one of the things he started looking at is where his wheat was coming from. He never thought about that before, um, but he realized it was coming from chemical growers growing conventional. Conventional wheat in uh, one of the Dakotas, and he started thinking, well well, you know how could I score higher and better uh, for my uh, bread into the district and He found a company based in uh, the Northwest that had growers in the Central Valley that uh-huh. he then approached and said, "Hey listen, if you grow this wheat, and he was looking at a wheat that isn't your, you know, traditional conventional wheat, um, but higher quality wheat, if you grow this wheat, I commit that I will buy it from you and I commit I'll buy it at a certain level because I need to need to have enough for the LA Unified School District mm-hmm. and then he went to the bakery that he was working with and said look I want you to use this flour it's going to be different but I promise no matter how those rolls turn out I will I will buy them from you I'm a committed buyer and I will I'll I'll I will, I will, I will you know, keep my promise on our contract, and he actually brought a mill online to mill the wheat, Amazing. and as a result, I think it's something like 550 million bread rolls every year in LA Unified uh, School District, some huge number, um, yeah. but he totally changed the supply, right. and, you know, it didn't happen in 24 hours, but it happened within a, within a year, Yeah. and so what it was a, a sort of unleashing creativity, unleashing a new way of looking at supply chains uh, as a result of this policy that we saw happen in that Bread example uh, that I think is really exciting.
2: Oh, I, I agree with you completely. But I, 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 you know, to again, to play a little bit of a devil's advocate here, um, one of the reasons that our food costs are so low as a nation is that agricultural and processing wait, there's another question I want to ask you before we get to, to, to wages for workers. But when we talk about revamping those agricultural methods, like saying, you know, to a farmer, well, you've been growing this kind of product for, you know, X number of years and you've invested in that infrastructure. And now, you know, I'd really like it. If if you did something else, um, you know, and I, I will commit to buying that, but then the guy is maybe has to, you know, invest in a lot of different equipment or different seeds that cost him more money or something like that. I mean, you know, a lot of times these these changes could be helped along with farm bill subsidies and insurance, but but there's also the factor of the farmer himself who's like, well, I, you know, I'm worried. I'm not going to be able to make my nut. What if you, you know, what if I don't sell enough of this product or what if uh, it doesn't really grow in my soil or what if I've invested in something and it doesn't, it doesn't work out for me. It's like, I feel like there's a piece missing in terms of like the education of farmers or the, you know, the the concern over farmers changing methods that they've been employing for decades for better or worse. And, um, and, you know how we're going to address that piece of it. You know, as well as, mm-hmm. you know, as well as getting somebody who mm-hmm. buys the stuff to to agree to do, to buy a different product, but then getting a farmer to agree to change his methods is is another entire question that is a, a really important one. I think. How do you right, How right. do you feel like farmers yeah, no, are it's addressing? A, it's great that? question. Yeah,
3: it's a great question. I mean, I think your you know this question uh, raises, I think, the central point that if we're talking about changing the food system, then we need systemic solutions. <laughs> you can't just right. come in with one intervention, right, and say, okay, the policy's changed. Now Everybody change your practices. Right. Uh, it really needs to be holistic. And that's why, um, you know, a policy like this is trying to work in lockstep with a whole range of other food system reform efforts that have to do with uh, you mentioned a number of these uh, in your question you mentioned a number of these things that also need to change everything from um, what kind of research are we funding what kind of training programs are we offering farmers to retrain in some of these new methods Uh, how are we talking to the finance sector so that you don't have a situation like I've heard from farmers who say who've told me stories of how their local rural bank would be happier and more comfortable giving them a half a million dollar loan for them to become a contract farmer for Tyson than to give them a ten thousand dollar loan for them to put up a hoop house to uh, for their right. orga- organic produce production because the bank doesn't know what a hoop house is but it's familiar with Tyson. So you know there's finance <laughs> sector reforms yeah. that need to happen. Huge. There's insurance sector reforms that need to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know there's there it all you know I think that you're right we don't want to be simplistic about the Solutions we're talking about because you're talking about real people who are, you know, on, you know, living on the margins already, uh, who for whom, you know, making these changes can. You know, be a serious shift in their production. What I will say, though, is talking to groups that work with farmers to transition them to these practices is that you know, and this is what is very encouraging, is that farmers, you know, farmers want stability. Of course, farmers want yeah. to feel like they're, um, you know, that they're they're not every year wondering, you know, what their fate is going to be. And so, when you talk about relationships like the ones that this distribution company is building with his supply chain, or around Los Angeles uh-huh. those farmers are thrilled to have a buyer who is a good honest Buyer instead of buyers like, for instance, big box stores like Walmart. That um, when you sign a contract with Walmart as a farmer, what you are signing is a contract that says at any point Walmart could cancel and say, "Forget it." You know that broccoli you just grew, all you know that you just that harvest you just did for us, forget yeah. it. We don't want to buy it. Uh, Walmart sets the price, can change the price at any time. Right. So when you're talking about a supplier that can provide that kind of stable, uh, stable purchasing, committed purchasing, you know it really does change the dynamic. Uh, and then you also hear you know, one of my favorite groups is a group called the Practical Farmers of Iowa. Um, and, you know, you hear about these groups like the Practical Farmers of Iowa that are helping conventional farmers, uh, shift to more sustainable practices. And what I hear from them and their organizers is that, you know, farmers really welcome this support. And, you know, they know that they're those who are trapped in the chemical treadmill. They know they're in a treadmill. Right. They see the weed resistance growing. They see the, the, the problems on their farm. They see the seed prices for genetically engineered seeds Skyrocketing, you know, they, if they're given a lifeline out, as long as there's that support, I feel like, you know, when I talk to farmers who are transitioning, that there's a real. Um, excitement around it. Uh, but again, it, it, we, it, we cannot be simplistic about it. And we also have to acknowledge that there's so many other supports that farmers need to be making this this shift.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I, I sat next to a, um, a farmer at the Nyman Ranch dinner last year, I think it was. And, you know, he had been doing conventional pork raising and, and it was truly what you describe, a, a lifeline. Um, he just he could not stand what was happening to his pigs. I mean, this is a guy who who literally asked me, I said, why don't you come and visit New York? Because of course he's never been to New York. And he said, only if I can bring my pigs. <laughs> oh. I was like, I was practically in tears. I mean, the guy loves his livestock. And yes, right. it's destined for slaughter, but like that doing it in that, you know, as a as a contract farmer, the way he had been doing it, it, was not happy for him. And he really was so happy to be part of the Nyman Ranch family. It was, it was a sweet moment. Um, I wanted to go also into the labor issue because that's another piece of the puzzle. I mean, especially with the meat workers, but even also all agricultural workers, you know, they're... I remember hearing um, Michael Hurwitz from the Green Market in New York for Grow NYC. And he was talking about, you know, he deals with farmers every day, obviously, because he runs all the markets in New York City. And he said, you know, the, the problem with raising wages for farm workers to $15 an hour or better is that most farmers, again, operate on such a thin margin. He said the guys that he works with, you know, they might love their workers, their agricultural teams that come in every year to help them pick their harvest. They might have long-term relationships with them, you know, go back even generations, but they literally do not have the money to pay them the 15 bucks an hour that they deserve and that they even might want to pay them. And that's another place where, you know, there's a lot of talk about it, but there's not a lot of sort of practical um, examination of how a farmer would, in fact, be able to, could he raise his prices enough to reflect that, um, that better working wage? Could he get subsidies that would somehow offset the cost of that? You know, like that's another, to me, another big issue um, where, you know, we say, oh, yes, we can do this. And then it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, it's really, it's not so easy. What do you think about that? How, what's your, what does your um, crystal ball tell you on that, on that score? <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, no, it, it's a really critical question. Um, you know, and I think we're not just talking about farm workers, but just food workers across oh, sure. across the, food the chain. Yeah. You know, eight, eight of the ten worst-paying jobs in this economy are in the food sector. So you're yeah. talking pretty much, you know, pick pick your food worker, and they're some of the lowest-paid, most exploited. So how do we how do we get around this? And you know, I think that there's you know, it, it, it's a different scenario for really really small-scale farmers. Maybe those you know, the farmers that Michael Herwitz um, you know is really working most closely with. Uh, I, you know, cuz when I turn my eye to, you know, the the bigger growers that have, you know, farm workers still getting paid, you know, just sub poverty wages, mm-hmm. I'm reminded that, you know, if you look historically, at the height of farm worker organizing and power in the early 70s, mm-hmm. where you look at, you know, you had high skilled farm workers, you know, who are, who are um, especially, you know, cauliflower, broccoli, somebody, cabbage some of these really high high-skilled picking jobs. You had farm workers under union contract that were making in today's dollars about $30, $30 an
2: hour. Wow. I did not know and that I,
3: either. And I did not know that either until, you know, sort of digging into this history. And yeah. and it wasn't like we were all paying exorbitant uh, amounts of money for our cabbage or right. our cauliflower. Right, right. Uh, you know, it's the economics. You've got to remember that when you look at what fraction of our food dollars actually goes to a farm worker, um, you know, in, in sort of in general or, you know, then or a, f- a farmer for buying from, you know, a farmer that's operating a, his or her own farm, you're talking about a tiny fraction of our dollars. I remember a study done recently from the United Farm Workers that looked at how much more would uh, a Californian shopper need to spend on their strawberries for farm workers to get, uh, who are picking strawberries to get a living wage. And it was like five, Five cents more yeah. per pint of strawberries, and most right, right. consumers, when you ask them, would say we'd pay that. We'd pay that in a second. It's true in a heartbeat.
2: Yeah. So well, it's like I the Immokalee it, you the Amacoli tomato pickers. They wanted a penny a pound more, right? Yeah, and, and that it, right, exactly. So a penny a pound for the Immokalee
3: farm workers in Florida sounds like nothing to you and me. Right. It doubled their wages.
2: Right. Right.
3: So we need to remember. I mean, I think this cost question is a critical one i think it often gets painted as well there's just no way that we can pay our workers more there's you know there's just no way uh, without raising prices for consumers and frankly when you look at the economics of the you know the the Especially larger food companies, that it's simply not true. Um, You historically we have paid more, uh, and it's when you look at where the dollars are going, they're simply getting concentrated in the very, very top end of these businesses, um, where you have the highest. You know highest paying whether it's CEO highest paying you know employees and sure. highest paying folks getting so much money and so much going to marketing and so much going to other aspects of the business and so little going to the worker
2: right well, so much of it goes because that leads me to my last question because that 's all we have time for but um, and so much money going to lobbying so let 's talk a little bit about lobbying um, <laughs> why why do you think that the food the progressive food movement has been I mean, I feel like we do not lobby Congress effectively or consistently, and um, even though most of the people in Congress, I mean, yeah, with a few notable exception, uh, uh, exceptions, most people in Congress are kind of like the procurement guy that you were talking about earlier in the show mm-hmm. who just, he had no idea that his supply, you know, mm-hmm. he got curious about his supply chain. And I think it is also true that uh, most people in Congress who vote on agricultural matters or environmental for that matter, literally have no idea of exactly what it is that they're, the whole picture is. And so I, I'm always curious, like, why why aren't we, um, you know, sending more uh, effective people on a regular basis to discuss, lobby, you know, issues around um, workers' rights, uh, environmental concerns, agricultural policy, you know, school food, et cetera. I, I feel like we don't do enough with the actual people who are passing legislation legislation, and I wondered if you would address that.
3: hmm Yeah, it's a great question, and, and I think you're absolutely right. And, um I, I, you know, even hear, hearing you ask that question, I'm like, I've got to go lobby on Capitol Hill. I know, you know right? You let's, do. Let's, let's meet. Let's, <laughs> let's meet in DC, and I'll you know visit those offices. Uh, I mean, it is happening. I don't want to say that we we don't. I mean, no, one of does. my favorite organizations, if anyone wants to you know see kind of who from our side is doing this so well, one of my favorite organizations is the National Sustainable Agricultural Agriculture Coalition (NSAC), uh-huh. and they do incredible lobbying. And um, you know, I think lobby being is a bit of a dirty word but they do incredible let's call it you know educating our elected officials on the issues right. and you know really helping to craft fabulous progressive policies so there are some groups that do it um uh, you know i would say that part of the answer to your question is this is that um uh, you know not to sort of make excuses for our side but to really underscore just how much money is spent mm-hmm. uh from the food industry lobbying and when we talk about the food industry i think it's important for people to remember that you know when when you look at the industrial food system the industries that have a stake in the status quo it's not just agribusiness producing you know the commodity crops you're talking about the oil industry you're talking now about the pharmaceutical industry. the fastest growing and most profitable sector of pharmaceuticals is animal pharma because of factory farms. Yep. So you're talking about the pharmaceutical industry has a stake in this. You're talking about um, the food processors, the restaurant association. You know, there's so many um, trade groups, the sugar association, the beverage right. association. Corn. So you're talking about a <laughs> lot of groups that have a stake in the status quo that have money and are spending it on lobbying on Capitol Hill. So we, we need to do more. Um, but I also feel like, you know, unfortunately there's just huge forces um, you know, at play here in terms of this lobbying force.
2: Yeah, I would just like to see, like, you know, as you said, it's not even lobbying so much as as education, so that these guys can actually make an informed decision about the votes that they're casting. Because, I mean, for example, I visited Congress recently myself, just a couple months ago, and um, I stopped into one guy's office, you know, from uh, uh, from a Republican from the Republican Party, and <clears throat> not only did he tell me that the industry runs food policy, and so what was the problem? But he then told me, uh, but I, and and so my response was, well, what about the four. Forty-two million food insecure households in the United States, and his jaw dropped. I don't think he knew that. I literally Seriously? do not think he knew that. <laughs> Depressing. And then he, and then he was like, "Well, I don't want to be on your show because you know you're obviously coming from the wrong point of view." I mean, it was just like, anyway. Um, I want you to now take a moment to um, promote yourself, promote all that you do, tell people where they can learn more about what you do and how to support it. So. Take oh, it thanks. away, girlfriend. Sure. <laughs> sure. So people
3: uh, people can check out Real Food Media's work at realfoodmedia.org. The other, the two other things I would mention is uh, we didn't mention already is that we are running an online book club. So for those of you who oh, want nice. to dig deeper into food issues, you can join Real Food Reads, which is our book club. where uh, We have podcasts up with authors, and we're just about to announce our 2017 lineup for books. So if you have a favorite book you want to yeah, mine. Uh, recommend. <laughs> Let us know. I want to recommend mine, Host their own book clubs, and we have (laughs) recipes that we recommend for you to make for your in-person book clubs with friends and community members. Um, We also have a free resource uh, at Mm realfoodfilms.org, where you can watch short films on food streaming online. You can also host pop-up film festivals. We provide resources for people around the world to host their own festivals. And if you are excited about good food purchasing and you want to see how your City can embrace the policy, you can go to goodfoodcities.org, and you can learn more about it there.
2: Fantastic. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining me on the program today. It was truly a pleasure. Um, I love talking to somebody who's as well-informed and articulate as you are, and I I just enjoyed every single minute of this, so I really appreciate your time, Anna. Thank you. Um, Thank you, Katie. I loved it, too. Oh, good. I'm so glad. And thank you to my sponsor, otherwise known as New York State Grown and Certified. Really appreciate your support for the station. and um, folks, we're coming into our fall fundraising drive. If you have not hit the donate button and joined our family, our growing family—over a million people—tune into Heritage Radio Network. A month now, that wasn't the case seven years ago when we started this fantastic experiment. So, um, just know that you are that you are appreciated. That we we love and appreciate all of our listeners around the world. And but we also need to uh, have your donations in order to continue to do the kind of work we do and to have people like Anna on the network on a regular basis. So um, thanks for listening and have a great week. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.